Listener Production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm in Sydney catching up with a friend and colleague I've known for over 20 years. He has done some seriously impressive things around the TV coverage of motorsport in Australia and globally, for that matter. For a long time, Nathan Prendergast was referred to as Kevin's son, Kevin is a very respected circuit manager and administrator who's worked at Sydney Motorsport Park, Phillip Island and more. But Kevin has now become known as Nathan's dad, given the award-winning productions his son has helped shape. Nath has basically done it all. He's raced, commentated, edited, produced. His directing talents are freak level and he climbed through hands-on hard work to the very top in Supercars TV, managing an important part of the business that showcases the sport in a manner that is the envy of many other countries and national motor racing championships around the world. Nath has a great sense of humour and can tell a good story. You'll enjoy some of the insights of what happens behind the scenes, the innovation and where the game is going in terms of the way we digest it. Plus... Working with legends like Mark Larkham, Neil Crompton and Mark Scaife, all of whom you can find in the Rusty's Garage Library. This isn't just about supercars either. Nath has covered drag racing and is a driving force in a new direction that the sport is taking in Australia, which you'll hear a little bit more about. He's covered iconic events like Dakar, Formula One and more recently the World Supercross Championship. He enjoys a bit of four-wheel driving and did some serious miles during COVID when supercars got back on the road despite the unpredictability around state borders. And the coverage of supercars online racing during the pandemic, thanks in part to Nath, became an international benchmark. More on that during our conversation as well. A quick thanks to an old boss in Simon Fordham, to Crompo, Chad Nalon, Dean Neal, and Matt Nolte for the backstories, which we'll get Nath to expand on. We begin with some fun. As I said, Nath loves a laugh, and my voiceover style became the subject of some stirring when we hit record. Hello, Nathan Prendergast. Oh, hello, Greg Rust. <laughs> yes, welcome back. Listen to you. Into your, come on, do your impersonation of me. What, how do I speak when I do my full voiceover thing? What do I do? Come it's on. time to do a podcast with <laughs> Nathan and put the pauses in all in sorts of weird places. Places. That's it, mate. Oh, this is going to be it's golden. It's your signature. It's your Thank signature you. read. All right. It's this is about you, not about me. So can we can we get started with uh, early life? Because your dad, Kevin, who is outside here making chicken curry for dinner, uh, you used to be Kevin's son. Now he is Nathan's dad. I know. That's it. <laughs> It's a funny change, and I, I can't pinpoint exactly when it happened, but uh, yeah, it was a transition, and I think it was a, as big a move for him as it was for me, because I've obviously grown up in his, his shadow, and he's taught me everything I know, and uh, I was forever, oh, you're Kevin's son, that's Kevin's little guy, and then there was a period of time in the, I don't know, decade or so ago, where all of a sudden it was, oh my God, you're 
you're Nathan's dad. <laughs> and, and I remember the first time I heard it, I was, I had a little bit of a snigger just to see his face. face and, yeah. But luckily, um, you know, dad and I still get to work together today. Cool. He has done some terrific things around um, administration, particularly around uh, um, drag racing. You grew up in... In WA, I love to kick these off with a with a bit of that kind of early life stuff. And where you've ultimately ended up in a in a TV sense has a lot to do with the fact that you were just surrounded by it, mate, weren't you? From a very young age, tell us about growing up and the the track you worked at, and and actually had a stake in and things like that, didn't he? So, yeah. So I was really lucky, Rusty. I was motorsport before I was television, hmm. and it's it, it's purely from dad ran Ravenswood Raceway. He was a part owner in Ravenswood Raceway in Western Australia which was a drag strip um, in a place uh, just outside of Mandarin, Perth. In those mm-hmm. days, it was a long way away from anything, like an hour drive. And an hour drive in Perth is, wow, that's a, that's a long way. Now, Perth's grown straight through it and more. But I was surrounded, I think I was three days old when that I was taken to the drag strip for the first time, which, you know, yes, some listeners are probably going to say that's child abuse. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, always immersed in it, grew up at the track, um, every weekend in summer, we had a race meeting there, mm. um, was always down. Um, and of course, having access to a facility like that, I learned to ride motorbikes early. I learned to drive cars early. I could drive a manual car at eight years old. Wow. Um, and just had a wonderful upbringing in a really cool place at a racetrack around race cars and... Didn't know a thing about turning corners, but knew what uh, a blower was by the time I was five years old. Cool. What about the influences of, of some of the stars in the scene at the time? Can you remember being a young bloke and meeting someone or someone coming around for a barbecue and things like that? Yeah, there was obviously a lot of the local heroes like John Zappier, for example, who still runs today. I mean, he was he was around and coming through. Gary Myosevic, who my father went on to work with at, at the Motorplex. Um, you know, for, for a lot of his life and a lot of his time there. But Dad also used to bring out what we call Zuax. So for a summer series, we would import American races and they were either jet dragsters or wheel standers. At one time, we brought in a, a, an American Camaro police car that ran against people and, and he'd put on these special three or four uh, event race meetings and these Zuax would, would race and it would always be well promoted. But I remember Doug Brown, who was the jet car driver, he was absolutely hilarious, crazy prankster, but he did a thing called a car burn. And I, I, I don't think anyone's done it. Roscoe McGlashan may have done it for a couple of years, but no one's done it for a long time, probably because it's illegal. And literally chain a wreck car to the back of a jet dragster. <laughs> And do burner pops with it and like run this thing up and throw the afterburner and blow this car to pieces. And I remember the first time <laughs> watching this going, oh, I've got it pretty good. You know, yeah. this isn't a bad way to grow up. You, you would be kind of immersed with some of these teams and people. Your dad's told me, you, I mean, you learned to pack shoots, you were around uh, top fuel jet drags as you just talked about. I mean, you, you really got... Uh, hands on into all of it, didn't you? Well, the first time we had top fuel at Ravenswood, the Reeds came over. So mm-hmm. Bruce Reed, Jim Reed, obviously, Reed, yeah. Jim was driving at the time. I mean, I was 11 or 12 years of age and these guys came and literally stayed in my room, you know, and... and Legends. It was just mm. amazing. They really looked after me. I helped them sell, you know, T-shirts off the back of the trailer and, you know, I was involved with that. Like you say, pack shoots, I remember... When they warmed the car up, they let me sit in the car. And Jim, at the time, 
um, I think the quickest DT in Australia was a 5.52. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he uh, went 5.46 or 5.48 at Ravenswood in record and I was just absolutely awestruck. And I remember Jim came back from the run and took his Winfield race shirt off and gave it to me and said, this is yours, Nate. So I have a long history with dealing with those guys and, you know, grew up as, mm. as uh, a fan, but almost family we've mm. been around them so long and they've always really really good to me and then obviously as as i moved to the east coast that disassociation with more races expanded take take me there because your dad um, because of his efforts in wa is getting more and more recognized on a national basis for what he was was doing there uh he, the, an opportunity comes up to go to what we now know as, as sydney motorsport park what do you call it the artist formerly known as eastern creek, the formerly known as eastern creek yeah <laughs> and back then the the main straight of the circuit that that we now regularly use was the drag racing venue wasn't it and, and he came the family moved and and you lived pretty much at the at the track didn't you yeah so middle of 91 i was halfway through year 11 at school so i had to uproot all my friends um and and move to sydney and i remember getting off the plane and never been to Sydney before prior to this move, uh, driving through the city. And on my first night, I saw a Ferrari and a Porsche. And I was like, I like this place. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was obviously a mad car guy. Lived at the track. So where the go-kart track is now mm-hmm. and, and Peter Brock Drive, Drive that yep. used to be just giant paddock area. The old Reen property. So I lived on Reen Road. Um, also famous, unfortunately, where Anita Cobby was found. But mm. uh, another story. Lived on the property, would go to school, um, was in Borkham Hills, so 30-odd minutes drive, come home, drop my bag, walk through the paddock, and in those days at Eastern Creek, there was supercar testing, MotoGP testing, Group C cars were testing. Um, Any day of the week, I could rock up and just stand on the hill or go to the pits and just get immersed in all this different type of motorsport. And it was absolutely mind-blowing for me. Even the paddock area behind my house, I came home one day and I could hear this banging and popping and it was um, Carlos Sainz testing the Celica Castrol rally cars on the gravel road around the back. How good. I'm not kidding you. There was two of them. So I'm sort of standing there. It's my backyard. So Mm. I wandered down and it was a corporate thing, like a ride corporate day. And this guy goes, where did you come from, kid? And I'm like, I lived just there. (laughs) My dad runs the track and he goes... Do you want a ride? Oh my. You went for a ride with Carlos Sainz in the Celica? 100%. No way. Kid you not. And so, I mean, that's one of many cool things that this world of motorsport has afforded me. Hmm. But, yeah, that's one of them. Dead set, got a ride. And uh, are there any stories of on quieter days at the track of sneaking out in coarse cars and, and things oh. like that? Am I allowed to talk about <laughs> well, this? Well, you could talk to it. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, the house we lived in had a course car parked underneath of it, a couple of motorbikes, and Dad also had a Eastern Creek-issued Suzuki Vitara. So this is pre-licensed days. I was 15 and a half-ish. Mum and Dad would go out for a function or a dinner. I'd sneak the keys, <laughs> lap, the, lap the Vitara, Carlos Sainz style around the gravel, around the back. My um, my girlfriend at the time would come over friends. I'd teach them how to drive in it. But one of the craziest things we did with my friends from Perth, and I don't don't try this at home. Home, friends. correct. We yeah. went for the world rollerblade land speed record. <laughs> so 
<laughs> those that have been at Eastern Creek before would know that the uh, the pit lane is bitumen, but where the car stop is concrete. concrete yeah. So we had rollerblades on, window down on the passenger side of the Vitara, hang on to it, and we would our mates would drive and we'd hold on to the car and and it was what whoever, number what sort of number whoever got to the fastest speed and when you got the death wobbles you'd jump in the window of the Vitara so you didn't or, so you didn't go into the back tires. So I hold the record at 86 kilometres an hour before I jumped in. Holy. Which isn't that fast, really. But oh, you're fun. kidding. On rollerblades. Roller oh. <laughs> Your world um, is this kind of beautiful blend of things to, to where you've ultimately ended up, mate. And what I want to lead to here is that before the the directing, the editing, the, the, the stuff you do so well, you actually commentated. Mm. And it came about, am I right? I may not have joined the dots properly here, but it came about because your dad would do some commentary, maybe at, at Ravenswood back in the day, and I think you did some scoring as a young bloke and you would have to announce the scores. Is that how it kind of got underway? Or Yeah, so back in the Ravenswood days, so I'm talking very early, like 10, 11-year-old, mm. there would be low-level street meets or race meetings and... No commentators would obviously turn up for it. it. wasn't really worthy of it. But people would want to know... The results. The, the results. Mm-hmm. What was the ET? What was the speed? And I, and so one day Dad said, Nathan, can you just stand here when the time slips come out of the machine, pick it up, key on the microphone and just say, left lane, read out the name, the ET and speed. So I started doing that and then obviously... I just couldn't help myself and I'd add some commentary on the last pass or I would talk about... you're such a shy type, well, aren't you? Well, yes, I'm <laughs> very shy, shy and reserved. Uh, and, and and I just got quite uncomfortable with, I guess, talking shit, really, mm. which is, mm. you know, what a colour commentator does. does. So then when we moved to Sydney, I was already relatively au fait with the comfort of talking uh, on a microphone, started commentating at the drag strip yep. at Eastern Creek. Because it was kind of a hole there, wasn't it? I mean, I think Castle Ray had been closed for quite some time. All of a sudden, drag racing was back in, in Sydney. Or was it you and Rob Oberg, I think, maybe? What did some of the early stuff kick R- off with? 100% Rob Oberg was commentating. I think it was an eight-and-a-half-year gap from the closure right. of Castle Ray before it opened up in, in, in Sydney. And so when it came back, it was huge, right? We had massive crowds. And I remember the first ever Winfield Triple Challenge, which a lot of people may recall, which obviously was bikes, cars, drag racing. That had 40,000 people at it and I was 16 and I was commentating it with Oberg. But it was only venue commentary. It wasn't anything to do with broadcast and, you know, I, I don't know, I was high-pitched and still had some growing to do. And that's actually when I met Greg Seater. Mm-hmm. So Greg Seater at the time was making a show called Pole Position. And this is the show that was on Sky prior to the formation of Speed Week, mm-hmm. which you and I yep. had some love in. Yep. Anyway, Greg had done a little bit with my father commentating some of these early shows that they were making covering drag racing. And they, they needed someone to do an interview with someone. And my dad said, well, my son knows all those guys. He can do it. So I grabbed a mic, cameraman went, cameraman went with me, went to do a couple of interviews and they went, oh, you seem to know what you're doing with this. Can you do a piece to camera? So I went, oh, sure. So I did a piece to camera, my first ever thing that have ended up on that? there. I do that? have it on a VHS somewhere. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm about this height and about 55 kilos, but um, delivered a piece to camera on what this engine was powered, you know, what mm. this car was powered by engine blower, blah, 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 finished it. And they're like, 
do you want to do more of this? And so that was started my involvement with Greg Cedar and AVE, which obviously spawned my entry into TV. Yep, that that little thing is something we have in common. That that, that uh, triple challenge meeting is where it started for me. You were go karting, so, right? Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. That's literally where it kicked off. That's a story for another day. Um, you have done, mate, some crewing as well, and I think even around Formula Holden and stuff like that too. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the beauties, obviously, of uh, living at the racetrack is uh, I got to meet a lot of people that were regulars there. So Tony Quinn, Phoenix Motorsport, had the last two garages, garage 49 and 50, and he was preparing Formula Holdens there. So when I got a Formula V, which for a very short-lived race career... We're getting to that, Nathan. Yes. We're getting to that. <laughs> he, he housed it and prepared it there, which was which was great. And then I also got to know a guy called um, Morris from Thelgo Motorsport, oh, yeah. <laughs> Boris Risman. Mm-hmm. And he was running car for Mark McLaughlin and I'm sorry, I can't remember the other mm. driver, but obviously that was the early days of Mark Scaife running Formula Holden and Mark was running around. So I crewed on them. I did a bunch of my summers, which was school holidays for me still with um, top fuel teams. So I travelled all around the East Coast with Pommy Steve Reed, who was running an alcohol car, then with the Reed family um, and when they were running their top fuel car, um, and just really had an amazing childhood immersed in, you know, drag racing basically and cars going fast. Was there ever anything else? Did Nathan go off and work at Mitre 10 or something or other as a part-time job? But this is only what you've you've known. Oh, no, I worked at McDonald's. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, – actually, that's when I worked out I could direct. Really? Yeah, and this is pre-directing, but I did uh, a stint at the M4 – um, Maccas c- Yes, yeah, City Bound uh-huh. Yeah, McDonald's yeah. And because I was uh, a little bit older I think I was just 19 when I was working there And I had a licence I did a lot of the night shifts And then did what they call walkers Which is packing the fridges and stuff at night But I, I at one stage Most of the, the, the men in McDonald's were working on the grill And most of the women were in drive through They put me on drive through one day And I could work out that I could take an order And then talk to the person out the window, get their change whilst taking an order and input it so someone could talk in my ear at the same time as me talking out. And the efficiency, they were like, oh, they kept me on it because it was really fast. And it was just I had the ability to say, you know, good afternoon, (laughs) McDonald's M4 City Bound, can I take your order, please? And then they'd give me the order and I'd lean out the window, g'day, mate, that's uh, $8.95, and, like, still hear them tell the order but give the change. And uh, so I was like, oh, my brain's a bit weird. That's a cool skill. Yeah. It's a bit of fun. <laughs> Bloody hell. Formula V. Formula V. So you had you had, I want to first of all, let's let's there's an incident at Amaru Park I want to I want to ask you about. How long did you when did you first get it? How did that all sort of start? What what type of chassis and so on? Um so it was called a Knight, like K N I G H T mm-hmm. and it was literally it was a homemade thing and it was called a Knight because when they were making it at the end of every evening they said let's just call it a Knight. Knight. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember how it was found, but I have a feeling that Ray Folletti was involved somehow. Anyway, the very first day they brought it to the track and I was going to test it, I went out and started lapping around because I was just like driving like Senna, oh, setting all new lap records. Came into the pits and like the car was feeling sluggish and I remember putting my foot on the clutch and the, the car, uh, sorry, the car just stopped. Anyway, I wasn't watching the temperature gauge. Their air cooled. It, th- it threw the belt off and Ooh. I cooked the motor, like 
destroyed it. And then I remember getting out and my dad going, looks like we just bought it. <laughs> <laughs> so literally I got this new race car and I'd killed the motor on its first test, just massive life lesson. No one said, look at the temperature gauge. Change, I yeah. probably should have, didn't. Mm. So rebuilt this thing. It was a pig. Uh, went testing. But the beauty of it was, as I mentioned earlier, Tony Quinn had it housed at the track. And so when I came home from school, if there was nothing on, I'd get in and cut laps. Like, and Because you could. Because I could. Mm. I don't know whether I was allowed, Loud. I don't know. <laughs> but I could. So I, I did, did laps and it was a bit of fun. And then, unfortunately... Your reference to Amaru, that car had a very short life. We were testing and we had brake problems and um, I was at Amaru, came into Stop Go and for those that, that may recall Stop Go, it was a right-hand turn right against the wall, sort of second at last the, At the end of a, a nice little straight. Too, nice so you, little straight. Yep. And in a Formula V, it was, it was top gear, fourth gear, come in, brake hard down a third turn right back on the gas because, you know, they weren't going very fast, very light stop quickly. Put my foot on the brake, pedal went to the floor. By the time I looked up, I was in the wall, um, but hit it flush right where the concrete ended and the tyres started. And I remember dust settled looking up and I could see my feet. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, the, the visor off my helmet, I hit that hard that it broke the visor off my helmet and it was sort of resting, coming to a rest on my feet. Sugar. The wing mirrors, one was stuck in the tyre wall mm -hmm. and I was about 10 metres back from the wall. I'd hit Sugar. and bounced back. And I was like, whew, that, that was big. Got up, went to stand up and it was like, oh, my leg hurts, fell out of the car. It was so big that I think it was Stephen Butcher stopped behind me and went, are you all right? I'm like, can you please help me take my helmet off? My neck is sore. Took my helmet off. I had a cut around my neck because I was wearing a silver chain. Uh -huh. It cut my, slashed my neck. And by this stage, the medicos had arrived, just, you know, the local ambo that they have at the test days. Mm -hmm. And they said, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, but my leg's a bit sore. And, I, and they said, give us a look. So I, I, I picked my knee up, leant down and pulled my race suit up over my knee and my kneecap was missing. And they're like, oh, I could see their face. They're like, this isn't good. And I straightened my leg out and it all went pop. Anyway, it turns out I broke my kneecap in seven pieces. And so that was the end of the night. We definitely called it a night, night. after that. It was gone. Okay. Was that the end of, of racing at no, all for you? No, I did buy another chassis. I did do a couple of race meetings, not with much success. Um, at that point, sort of the 1200s were moving out and 1600s were coming in. And, mm -hmm. and Anyway, I just, I loved it. You know, I, I'm the most competitive guy on an indoor go-kart track you've ever seen, but there's way better people at it than me. So I had my stint in it. It's allowed me to drive and learn and understand more things about covering motorsport, but I was never going to be Craig Lowndes or Mark Scaife. Let's come back to the television stuff in a moment. Can we just go down the path of how that and your work life has also afforded you the chance to, let's call it sample, other things, right? So the first thing uh, in recent years, I guess you could say, that comes to mind, I think you drove one of Crompo's 86s. Did you go out and have a steer of that at City Motorsport Park? What'd you do? Yeah, I've driven an 86. So, so yeah, you're right. I've, I've been really lucky. I've driven Formula Ford, which is actually the first thing I drove because mm -hmm. Quinny had a ride day on and I drove Formula Ford at Eastern Creek. I've driven um, Formula Vs, as we've discussed. I've been lucky enough to lap a sprint car. Excellent. Where are um, I did it at Newcastle before it shut down. Okay. And um, and that was fun. 
I didn't even come remotely close to getting anywhere near what I should do in that thing, Mm -hmm. but it was awesome. Uh, Commodore Cup car. um, I've driven a supercar, one of the Brad Jones cars. Yep. And where was that? Winton? At Winton. Winton, Yeah. yeah. It was so good. Mm. Like, I only got sort of six laps because. Someone oiled the track and it was a red flag and I was only probably going to get eight anyway, but man, that was an exciting, exciting experience. But yeah, I've, I've been very lucky to have been able to sample different bits and pieces. They are moments of great perspective, mate, because then all of a sudden you appreciate what a supercar is. Aussie guy. racing cars. Aussie racing cars. Okay. You, you and I know a lot about Aussie <laughs> racing cars, but yeah, Wardy, and actually they're the ones I love the most. Most, yeah. God, they were fun to drive. Hi there. Like racing, Nathan shows us that TV production definitely isn't for the faint-hearted. Just like commentator Bill Woods found out on a promotional parachute jump. But he's basically said to me, we're in an asylum. This is a, a mental hospital. And this lovely young lady walks up to us and says, who are you? And I said, oh, my name's Bill. I said, we just parachuted out of a plane. She said, out of a plane, uh, out of a helicopter. She goes, out of a helicopter? What, up there? I said, yeah. How high? I said, oh, I don't know, eight or 10,000 feet. I couldn't remember. And she goes, and they think we're crazy. <laughs> there it is, that beautiful laugh of Rusty's. Anyway, hear from Bill and Rusty in the Rusty's garage library. Back to Nathan. Coming back to the TV side of things, I, I couldn't find it on YouTube. I did go bloody looking for it, but I'm nearly certain you did a story or they wired you up when you drove the Commodore Cup car at Oran Park, did you not? Did you not do a story for Speed Week on that? Yeah, they did. So, yeah, they wired me up and and it was just like a bit of fun. It was actually mm-hmm. sort of more, let's just record it, you know, because Nate's going out and we were covering the event the next day. I think it was like a Friday practice, but I was quick enough to qualify seventh. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so they were like, oh, let's turn this into something. So, yeah, it's in an old Speed Week archive from yeah. somewhere. Great old category too that for people listening to the, the podcast, uh, Lee Holdsworth came through, you know, yep. for example, Holdsworth family and so on. So that's that's uh, great class. Life's changed obviously since then. Now, you you talked about AVE, Greg Cedar. So yep. Australian Video and Entertainment, uh, people will know Speed Week. It's one of the longest running, it may be the longest running kind of motorsport show this country's ever had on on SBS. You talked about how the, the dots sort of joined. At this stage, Greg is running it for memory out of Burwood, captured memories attached to a wedding photography slash video company, wasn't he? I mean, he was branching out into yep. motorsport. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was raw, mate, wasn't it? It was it was new turf for all, all and sundry. It was, and and but you know what? He was making a lot of content. He was one of the first guys that went. You know what? You don't need to have huge OB trucks and and all these um, flash technology to go make motorsport television. And I don't even know how he got the broadcast deals he did, but he had Penrite funding. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was making it out of. Um, he made most of his money, like you say, out of Captured Memories, which mm-hmm. was a wedding video company, initially and then departed from that to form um, the motorsport side of it. But when I first met Greg, like I said, I was young, I was at the track, um, and funnily enough, when I did my HSC, the night before my geography exam, I was at AVE in Burwood till three in the morning doing voiceovers for the drag racing gala dinners the next day, you know. And congratulations to your super sedan winner. (laughs) And 
so GS and I go back a long, long way. way. Mm. But he didn't give me my first shot in TV. Mm-hmm. He certainly introduced me to what it was all about, mm-hmm. but I was only there as a commentator. Okay. And that was that was how it started. And then obviously I had a very big history with him after that. So tell us the first, the actual first start then, mate. What was that? So uh, towards the end of tobacco sponsorship in drag racing, they were actually pouring a fair bit of money and uh, into the sport and doing a lot of television shows on Channel 9. So mm-hmm. Daryl Leeslake was calling them, Andrew yep. Voss was calling them. And y- your dad and Big Daz called some together, didn't they? they? And he was trying to manage the track at the same time. And Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and they were running uh, what was called the Winfield Pro Series. Mm-hmm. And it was you know lots of top fuel cars, lots of other great racing, all the other Group 1 categories. And it was essentially uh, Calder... Um, Eastern Creek at the time and Willowbank Raceway and they were making really high quality, bringing proper OB trucks. Saul Stein did the coverage oh, for right. the Triple Challenge for Channel 9 mm-hmm. and there was a guy called John uh, John Leahy and he was running that side of the TV. Anyway, at the time, uh, we were taking that footage and Dad was making television commercials for the next events and I was going into Global, which was... At Ride there, at wasn't it? At Ride, mm-hmm. yep. It doesn't exist anymore. And, and and I was sitting in on the post-production of the TVCs. And I remember saying to John at the time, because he knew me from the traps, I was around at all events commentating. Mm. And he said, and I said, how do I get into TV? Like, what do I got to do? And he said, well, I've got a job at Horizon Learning Channel, <laughs> which was Optus Vision, uh-huh. right? Very infancy of Optus Vision. Vision. It's yours if you want it. It's a tape operator. Now, what that meant was one-inch machines, which I had to lace, and I basically sat in the world's dodgiest MCR and rolled um, shows and ads. So it was a manual roll, like when the next astronomy show started, into a couple of, you know, Mm. Clint's Crazy Bargain type adverts into the next how to grow your plants type thing. But what it allowed me to do is it was right next door to the post house where all the drag racing shows were made. And I said, I rang Jim Reed, who was sort of responsible for the TV at the time, funding-wise, and I rang John Leahy and I said, do you mind if I access the rushes and the masters that I want to cut my own music clips? And on my own time, I taught myself how to edit and I cut a music clip to kickstart my heart. And I was still commentating at Speed Week at the time. Speed Week had just started maybe it was a couple of years in, and, and I'd go into Sita and the editor at the time and I'd go, hey, hey, have a look at this clip I've cut. And they'd play it and they're like, oh, how'd you do that? And I explained them. It was really rudimentary. Anyway, about a week after I showed them my latest edit, and I'd been at Horizon three, four months, mm-hmm. Greg Ramey said, do you want to be an editor? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to be an editor. He goes, okay, when can you leave your job? And I told him it was like very quickly. And he said, okay, start Monday. Anyway, I rock up thinking I'm going to be the junior editor under their existing editor. Mm. You're, you're in the deep end, mate, aren't you? I'm mm. the only guy. Mm. And so this is not, you know, the old days of tape-to-tape machines. Never dealt with that other than one one-inch machine to another in my whole life. And I remember Greg sat me down and he said, okay, Nathan, uh, this is an input. This is an in point. That's an out point. Uh, just line up your shots and let's just go with that there. And just like, let me go. And it was the first ever event I did was Australian Superbike Championship from Lakeside. Uh-huh. I'd never been to Lakeside in my life. I asked someone to draw me a map of the track 
and and roughly mark where the cameras were and I had to go around with each shot and go, okay, that shot ends match there. Match it up, piece it together. Match it up and piece it together. And my first week I cut two Australian Superbike races, um, two 600 races mm-hmm. and a sidecar race mm-hmm. for a one-hour show. i never done an edit in my entire life and it was a, you know, thrown in the deep end but I was straight away... I love this. That's cool. Just just for people that aren't necessarily TV types, when you say MCR, Master Control Room, yeah. you're talking about tape. When I mean, everything's bloody digital now, so you're talking tape back then, big big reels, and and you would I would imagine, mate, you had to line everything up. So you're going from one thing seamlessly transition to the next, and you're doing that off big tape machines, weren't you? Yeah. Well, in the in the Horizon days, it was one inch. So literally, they were the tape thickness was the width of a one inch, and it came in a giant open spool. <laughs> Right, not in, not captured in a plastic container or anything like you. Wow, that's later. That's beta cam. Mm. You know what I mean. Mm. So, and then when I went to AVE, that was SP beta cam, cam. Mm. and and so you know these are analog, big plastic, closest thing you describe to VHS tapes mm. that you put in giant machines, expensive machines, and you had to literally play the shot out and then join it with another shot. And it was a real baptism of fire because I had to learn all the, you know, not only the creative side of it, but the technical side of it, audio mix. Now, right now, let's just have a little bit of a lesson for everyone at home. Right now, when you have a nonlinear edit suite, you can put your vision in and it's a digital file and you can manipulate its speed and do whatever you want and you can cut all your shots and delete them and redo it. You get one shot at this. Not only did you have to get the shots right, when you mastered it and when you came in and put your commentary on it, when you played it all out, you had to audio mix it, you had to add the music, you had to lay the graphics over it live, you had to prepare all of the graphics for the entire race when you did it. And and it really was an incredible foundation of television for me to sort of be a one-stop shop to have to figure out how to do everything. Mm. So, you know, it was... It was Low budget stuff, but it was a magnificent foundation for me. So, were you going at night time to do some training no, somewhere? So, zero. this is all hands on. The I reckon the only reason I was able to do it is because I knew motorsport so well in my heart and my head mm-hmm. that I the TV stuff is all I had to learn. Mm. I just knew the product. I knew how to put it together. And at the time, Greg's core product was drag racing. Mm. So he was really doing mostly drag racing. So most of what I edited was drag racing, so it was a no-brainer for me. Um, and then the rest of it, I, I just learnt the sports. Do you know what I mean? And because I had years of growing up at Eastern Creek and being immersed in that, I sort of just had an affinity of how to put the pieces together, the vision together to, to suit it. The tracking that you've taken here intrigues me because it's very unique, mate. Most people, when they pursue the path of, of, of broadcaster, commentator, whatever, they are, are fixed on that, they love that and off they go. You, in fact, went another way and went, you know what, I actually love the creative process here. I, lo- I love the and, – and did – I mean – I think the I think the commentary still clearly helps you to this day because you understand what's going on in the in the commentary box, how you can each complement each other. But that's a very very different tack to have taken, mate, isn't it? I, I really am, you know, lucky that I've been able to sample a little bit of all parts of the industry because it sort of has given me an understanding to be able to not only. Um, analyze what I what I like and don't like out of it but also work with people to advise them hey I think maybe we should go down this path or mm. don't do that and I've been really lucky that 
even though I was not even, you know, 1% of you as a broadcaster, you'll at least respect my opinion. Oh, more than than respect. Because you know I've sat in, Mm. put a headset on and sat in front of a mic and tried to do it. And I, like I said, just like with the motor racing, I worked out that I was better at other things than driving race cars. It was the same thing with being in front of the camera. I was way better behind the camera than in front of the camera. You know, and there's still video floating around from me from 2003 with a weird haircut and a bad (laughs) necklace doing pieces to camera. And the only reason I did it is because at the time I was the most knowledgeable person on the product. So the ability to do a 40-second piece to camera post-produce wasn't the end of the world. But, but I mean, I've edited, I've shot, I've directed, I've produced, I've done talent. Hmm. There's an argument to say how good I did at any of them, but the point is I have done a little bit of everything and it's it, you're right, I've been very lucky that that pathway which I can attribute a lot to Speed Week and, mm. and CETA, the giving me those opportunities, has allowed me to have a holistic approach to what I want out of a television product. Mm. And then the fact that I love motorsport so much and it was my history, being able to put the two of them together, it's been very, very fortunate for me. You are the sum of many great parts, mate. Just on your point about um, one inch, I can recall going after Targa one year into Southern Cross in, I don't know whether it was Hobart or wherever it was, and we had to make our way through to the newsroom and I walked past and there's this massive reel going, you know, <laughs> and I said to the guy who was taking me to the newsroom, I said, what the hell's that? He goes, oh, shit, mate, don't bump that. That's the Sunday night movie. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can we wrap up the AVE chapter here for a second? Just um, how long did you spend there? Because you did spend quite a chunk of time there. Yeah. You're in the deep end, as you talked about before. He has... Um, you know, cornered this this section of the market in Australian motorsport and covers a lot of categories. So you got to do a lot of things in that time you were there, didn't you? Superbikes you mentioned before, drag racing and more. Yeah, so I, I started at show 89 and mm-hmm. I left at 476. It and, and that was just the Speed Week numbers. In the same time, we were doing Speed Machines on Channel 9. We were doing uh, Full Throttle. We were doing a whole bunch of rebranded stuff. You know, in the peak of the the final years I was there, um, we were making a two-hour speed week, a two-hour show for Fox, which was sort of in its infancy, a half-an-hour show for Nine. And so this is four and a half hours of television and there was me and another editor. Crazy. So we were pumping out huge amount of stuff. But, yeah, it was just shy of 10 years. In fact, I was three months shy of 10 years there. Um and a lot of people were like, oh, why did you stay and do your 10 years? And the, the truth of the matter is it was time to go. Mm. I you think know? you and I had a conversation about this in an edit suite one day. I'm not the only person to have spoken to you about that, but we knew you had great talent and it was time, mate. It was time to spread your wings, wasn't it? So And, and yeah, and there was a few things in the universe that lined up that, that sort of showed mm. opportunity for me and I followed it. And, and in, whilst it was really hard at the time and I had, you know, it cost me a lot of things personally and mm-hmm. um, it proved to be professionally the right call for me but mm. you know um gs is still operating to this day speed week's still running around they still do a lot of stuff in fact you know i'm having a coffee with greg tomorrow morning funnily enough wow. there you go wow. so um I, we he was obviously very hurt when i left he was very upset um and we took a we took a little while you know 12 or so months to 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 mend the bridge but i will always regardless of you know all the funny stories about little weird things that happen at AVE, and they still on they're still ongoing. That it was incredible ground for talent. He mm. gave people like you and me a Correct. chance, and it's not just at every level: cameramen, editors, 
producers there's a lot of really good people that have come out of that place and it's a lot it's all the opportunity that 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 greg and speedwick and all the other people that went through there has allowed you know me and others to grow and, and develop that's a string to your bow that you haven't probably mentioned you can actually pick up a camera and shoot too mate can't yeah. you when you oh, need to yeah. did you learn that there I learned that there. Did you? Yeah. And it was because no one really wanted to get near top fuel cars on the start line. And I was like, yeah, give me the camera. I'll show you how it should be shot. <laughs> and I did. I shot a lot of drag racing start line. So just just a snapshot of the early days of AVE. Go. Um, when we were doing drag racing 97 in Queensland, I would drive the van up, run the cables out, drive the van up on the Friday night, run the cables out on a Saturday. I would get on camera and shoot the start line um, I would do the interviews in the pits and some pieces to camera. I would then pull the cables in Sunday night, drive through home Sunday night, and get in, then edit the show, and then commentate the show. So at one point, I was like, this is really embarrassing. I was director, producer, editor, cameraman, commentator, host of the drag racing show. Unreal. <laughs> so I was like, uh, maybe I should just change that to just something more simple, <laughs> holistic. In leaving AVE before you start your supercars chapter there is a little window in there where i think you were more or less operating on your own were you not and that was tough mate wasn't it yeah it was really tough um, when i left um speedweek slash ave i remember getting a call from um a bunch of people saying why are you going you know mm. i was relatively paid well at the time um for my age you know i was running the joint essentially but i got an opportunity to do some work with Murray Lomax, who was the executive producer of Supercars at the time and just really had a pathway to start my own business. So I mm-hmm. went out and started my own business. And then in the period of time from when that happened, a lot of the work that I was promised for the following season, the following year, it, it went away for a whole bunch of reasons, no one's um, real fault. And, and what it meant was a lot of the work and the income streams that I had disappeared. And I basically lost my house. Sure. Um, you know, I was I was really on Struggle Street there for a mm. little bit. Um, but the lifeline I got thrown was Murray Lomax said, I don't have anything for you in 2006 mm-hmm. as, as much. But End of the Channel 10 tenure. Yep. Correct. And it was one of, it's one of the reasons why a lot of the editing work was, was disappearing. Um, but I can get you to every single supercar event and I'd already started going to every single supercar event from the end of 2005, sort of, I think, August-ish onwards. Um, I can continue getting there, but you're going to have to work on um, on the Big Pond live stream feed, which was an in-car channel, mm-hmm. and you're the audio guy. And I was like, oh. okay, you know I don't know much about audio, Muzz. <laughs> He's like, well, mate, that's a pretty easy job, but you'll get to all events and and it'll allow you to, to travel with the series. And, and it was the best thing I ever did, so... Mm. I started there, not a lot of money, but it allowed me to to get inserted into the crew and the team. And my first year, 2006, was was basically travelling to all events and, and setting up the audio gear and working on that and the Big Pond channel. Did you work on the panel beater show with Crompo and things like that too? I no, did a bit of that, that was, no? man, that was the big time, that mm-hmm. show. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't working on that. You've got to be kidding. Uh, but, but I was producing a couple of um, – producing and editing a couple of sports shows. So I think it was Carrera Cup at the time mm-hmm. and uh, the, the Fujitsu series, which is now the, the Dunlop, the development yep. series. I was producing those shows. So there was enough work to get me through um, – but what it really did is it in, it injected me into the series, the crew, the people, the drivers, yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were there. Um, it was the last year of 10. 
And then when the Channel 7 era started in 2007, Murray said, okay, I want you to be pit producer. Mm-hmm. It was the advent of basically supercast TV, effectively, mate, Correct. wasn't it? Yeah. The very first year of supercast TV. So so um, sort of towards the end of 2006, Murray offered me that role for the year following. So that was really exciting. And that's when I met Simon Fordham and I started my relationship with Fordham. Yep, you're great mates still to this day. He's off doing some amazing things around sport generally but especially rugby league at, at channel nine you would both climb the ladder and ultimately have that job as as head of supercast tv or general manager of supercast tv the the top role but the pair of you when you started i think you had this moment where you kind of looked at one another and like do you know what you're doing do you know what you're doing and let, like let's just do our best here more or less wasn't it uh, that, mate you're, very, you're right it was adelaide the very first year and um it's funny because, you know, I was one of those 10-year overnight success stories, you know, like all of a sudden. <laughs> who is this guy? Yeah, who is this guy? You know, I've been doing like a little bit of motorsport. But the truth is I, I, everything I thought I knew was out the window when I went into that world because I hadn't done a lot of live. Mm-hmm. I directed so many races as live, but the proper word live, it was supercars was my real foray into it. So sitting in the back row next to Fordo, I knew everything about the category, the sport, like, you know, the rules, this and that, but not a huge amount of live experience. Thought I knew everything about live experience, knew nothing about, about the, the cars <laughs> and the sport. And I remember he turned to me, he said, all right, all right, you help me with the car stuff, I'll help you with the TV stuff. And I'm like, deal. <laughs> <laughs> but pit producing, did that come easily to you? Because you you knew the sport, you'd, you'd worked on building all those those programs before. So the storytelling of that is, is naturally in your brain, mate. So was it... An easy thing to sort of to, to guide those that are commentating in the lane about what you wanted and, and so on. What was that like? It, it, it was from a storytelling perspective. It's like bench racing because essentially you're reading the race, communicating with the pit reporters of which you were one at the time and you're allocating resources to go to the right place and then filtering might be too much of a, a tough word but essentially helping the producer decide what's important to go into the And when broadcast. to put it in, when, when to splice and it when in. when to yeah, put yeah. it in. So mm-hmm. that, that actually wasn't that hard. The hardest thing was actually m- trying to manage you guys like, yes, I know it's a great story, but hang on a second. Come to me, come, come to, to me, me now. Come to me I've, now. Got I've got something, I've got something. You know, and, and like soon as there's an incident, like the comms light up and it's like, I'm on my way and I'm like, Rusty's already there and it's like... So you just, most of it was actually people management, but the Mm. beauty is, you know, everyone that I've worked with in that role has been ultimate professionals and, you know, and I I used the word before respect. I think they've always respected if I've gone, no, we can't do it now. They haven't really pushed it. And I think there's so much love in that supercars world, even back then and to this day, where everyone works so well with each other that if you have to push back on something, they generally just, you know, accept it because there's a real genuine reason. In doing some research for this, I've spoken to our, our great mate, Dean Neal, who's doing some terrific things around AFL and other things now, to Fordo as well. They both, um, without even talking to each other, used a similar you know, choice of words about you, that you, you're directing, you are a freak in that role, right? When was the first time that you did live directing? What, where was it? Where did you get the chance? What was the category? Um I th- in a supercars world, I don't recall anything really properly live in an AVE world, but in the supercars world, I remember that we were at Queensland Raceway and uh, at those days we didn't we weren't on air all day. In the Channel 10 days, you essentially sort of did some highlights and some pre-records in the day and then you, you might have come on air at 12 or 1 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to Gary Deans, 
if you want to break gas, I can direct some of these lower support categories. And he said, yeah, fine, that's okay. I jumped in, sort of got around it without being told too much. And, and Murray's like, oh, you can direct. And I was like, oh, I've done quite a few races prior to this time, but nothing live. The first proper, proper live stuff I did was actually Bathurst in 2007. Yeah. When the track was split in two, two. with two directors. Mm-hmm. And I did the top of the mountain. Yeah. And um, the Channel 7 guys uh, had pushed for me, uh, Fordo had pushed for me. And I that was my first proper live directing gig. And I remember just straight away going, yeah, this is what I was born to do. Super. I love it. Super. I, absolutely loved it it was incredible take people there so you talked about it being top of the mountain how many kind of cameras were you looking after and how did it work between you and gary deans and the crew at the bottom of the mountain so the track was essentially split in half from the cutting through to halfway down the chase um i think my first camera was camera seven and my last one was like 21 right so what's that 17 18 cameras uh gary at the bottom directed the cameras at the bottom of the track but he also um inserted the helicopters, the in-cars, the pit cameras, the host cameras, stuff like that. So he was the main director. I All I had to worry about was making the track pictures look nice from the cutting to the halfway down the chase. But that's where all the fun shots are, Rusty, and that's where all the different overlays are. And so I just remember really loving the the storytelling I got to have all the assets. Because you've got to remember, even though I direct a lot of stuff, it was low-budget stuff, so, you know, there was one camera essentially to cover that part of the track at Bathurst. You had alternate shots and different shots and speed shots. So um, working with Gary was really easy. He was a real professional. He was really clear with his instruction. And and I just spent the three days just absolutely loving our time up there and all the camera guys and having set plays and set moves for all the different camera shots. And yeah, really enjoyed it. But I do remember the start of the race because obviously every session is a practice session of qualifying leads up. I'd never done a Bathurst race start. <laughs> I remember right before the race, my legs were sore because I was so tense. I was so tense. I was all tensed up in my legs. All my calves were all locked up. I was like, Nathan, you got to chill out. Chill out, <laughs> yeah. yeah. For people that aren't aware, I mean, um, Bathurst is, depending upon what, what year we're talking you know, high 200s in terms of staff that you have to, to look after there. How many cameras and so on? Paint a picture for people there and on boards and so on. I think in the in the 10 days there was a bit more staff than we have now. I think it was 300 plus uh, in the early seven days. Uh, now, I, I, you know, I think it's around 250. But um, It's the, massive, mate. It's, it's, it's enormous. There's, if you add up the ENG cameras, the onboard cameras, the specialty cameras, I think in my last year um, that I did Bathurst 21, I reckon there was 167 different cameras in, in the broadcast um you know 30 kilometers of fiber it's it's an enormous technical um challenge in itself just to cover 6.2 kilometers of track um and it, but it's highly satisfying as a broadcaster or as a television guy because the pictures just look so beautiful and you know it's it's such an incredible event where it brings the best out in everyone. Mm. It's not the last race of the year, but it feels like the grand final. Everyone rises. I mean, I think we did 48 hours of television before the race even started, you know, in the 21 year, which I think was the combined ARG year as well. Remember yep. we had yes. the extra day? Yeah. Yeah. It was like ridiculous on-air hours. Um, but from a technical perspective, with the exception to like maybe a um, Australian Open tennis, which has got, you know, eight or 16 courts, I don't think there's a bigger individual 
like one one sporting field, one location coverage that's got more technical assets than Bathurst. Fordo reminded me, you at some point in, in the great career that you had with him or the chapter that you had with him, you you pioneered or, or you changed tack from the, the multi-OB truck sort of integration. So, so onboards came under your wing. The main cut came under your wing. Um, you know, all these other assets. How in the hell did you do that, mate? Well, the, the Bathurst was an interesting one because I did do a couple of years as the mains director with the split truck format and I always had my frustrations. Um, and I always kept saying to people, don't we have the technology now? to put this through one truck. Can't we make this a one director model? And I remember a lot of people said to me, it's impossible, one director can't do it's all. It's too much for one person. It's too much for one director. Mm. And I'm like, no, I, I'm telling you, it's the opposite. You know, Bathurst is one of those tracks with a couple of long shots where a director does have half a break. I mean, Gold Coast is a harder track to direct than Bathurst, to be totally honest with you. But it was a huge technical challenge. And in the early years, it was, it was not possible to have all of the cameras route back to one truck. When that technology became available, I pushed for it. I said, I want to do it. Trust me, this will be the best outcome. I'll direct the whole coverage. And at first they were like, oh, well, you can just do the track cut. You can't do the onboards and the you can't have the onboards or the pit cameras. That didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, just give me everything. And then, and now that's how it's, it's run done. to this day. Mm. It's how Brian Forshaw does it right now. Mm. It is the best possible outcome for the product. It's one mind telling one story, um, and I and I stand by it. It's the best. It's the best way to do the coverage. As is your nature, and the demands of such a premier sporting event like that, it, it means that you're constantly changing it up, mate. And you, you people don't probably realise you. You guys will often go and do a a full survey months beforehand just because the camera at, at the cutting was at this height before why can't we change it so it's a bit lower or conveys a bit more speed or a bit more height or something you're always looking to change it up weren't you yeah we are every year you do at least one possibly two surveys of bathurst where you drive up you um will go drive the track walk the track have a look at different ways you might have had an idea that you head up there to check out one of the ones that really bore fruit was in 21 when Brian Forshaw, myself and Neil Crompton went up and, mm-hmm. and this was actually Crompo pushing this. And, and and before I get into the Bathurst chat, when I started directing supercars and, and we talked about those early years when you weren't on air all day, every day, mm-hmm. every session, Crompo and I would walk the track together and, wow. we, and we would go during, during supercars practice sessions and we'd stand and look at shots and go, look at what the car does here. I mean, a lot of what I am today is because of particularly in the supercars universes with thanks to Crompo Hmm. and 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 I had a thirst to understand and capture what the cars did on track Hmm. convey Hmm. the speed Hmm. convey the attitude and Crompo and I walked it but in the modern era like we cover the first cars on track in every session so that went away and Neil was like you know what we let's go back and walk Bathurst so we walked Bathurst and it really allowed us to um get back to have a look at how the track's cambered here and look how you're blind into the cutting. And not only are you blind into the cutting, look where the track drops off at the wall here. So if you're one wheel too wide, you're going to hit the wall. So how do we capture that? Um, We can't ever see that the inside wheel's off the ground here. So from that one survey, we ended up adding three extra specialty shots. We added a super slow-mo inside the track uh, at the top coming into McPhillamy and we added that high-speed whipper inside the chase at Conrod hmm. 
just to try to capture the speed or deliver something different. And they were all fantastic new additions. The one thing I will say about Bathurst is because of the history of it and and the comfort that viewers get out of watching it and understanding the cut, I always was mindful to not mess with it too much. Really? I did not want viewers to get just to be too clever for viewers to, to not understand what that what part of the track they were looking at or, or do too much to mess with the historic the historical significance gotcha. of certain shots. Gotcha. It was really mindful that to, to honor that place and anything we did was an enhancement mm. and we didn't remove any of the you know the traditional shots that people have been watching for 40, 50 years. That's the end of part one of my podcast with former GM of TV and content at Supercars, Nathan Prendergast. We are not done with the behind the scenes yarns in broadcast land just yet. Part two is in the garage, all loaded up and ready for you to fire up right now. The freakish way that he captured one of the most played incidents in the modern history of touring car racing and Bathurst. Covering Dakar, Formula One, World Supercross, the craziness of the KL City Grand Prix and spinning the discs in the desert. Just go with me on that one, it'll all make sense. Plus reflections of working with some of the legendary frontline people you know and love when you turn on the telly for each round of supercars. 